Okay, <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. Uh, I'd like to discuss um, this <clears throat> this concept that we have. Uh, the the Talmud spells it out. Um, it's called the the, the Rafuah Lifne Hamaka, which means that that God in his uh, in his in his love in his in his in his mercifulness gives us the healing before he delivers any uh, sickness, any blow. So in other words, the, the, the healing is always prepared first. And we should take strength from that and, and, uh, and know that. <clears throat> we also have a principle, which is that if we're ever given a test, we're also given the ability to overcome the test. <clears throat> There's one exception to that, by the way. <clears throat> Excuse me which is if a person asks for a test. So a person always has to be careful not to ask for a test. And by the way, we learned that out from uh, King David, because in the beginning of Shemona Esrei, it says, um, you know, uh, Elokei, God of Abraham, God of Yitzchak, God of Yaakov. And it's recorded that, that, that King David, David HaMelech, said to Hashem, how come it doesn't say God of David? <laughs> and so Hashem said, because, you know, they, they were tested, so, so, so David and Melch said, test me. And anyway, without going through that whole long story, God even told him the area that he was going to test him in in his life, and still, uh, at the level that King David was at, he, even though it says that David never did anything wrong, nonetheless, at the very fine, high level that he was at, he didn't pass the test. So, so they learn out from that, because he asked for the test, that he wasn't necessarily able to overcome it. So, so, um, but nonetheless, that those are just exceptions. The main thing is the idea that Hashem does give us the ability to pass any test that we're that we're confronted with. So, so that should give us a lot of strength. And I want to show how this principle um, manifests itself in terms of in terms of our freedom, in terms of us getting out of Egypt. Um, and before I do, uh, I want to just talk about this period of the year that we're in right now, which is related to, to freedom and to slavery, and also just to the essence of time. So, we're in this period of the year right now called Shovavim. And Shovavim is, is, is very interesting. That, that word is composed of the first letters of the first six parshas of Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus. So the Sh of Shovavim is for Parshas Shmos. The, the M of Shovavim at the end is Parshas Mishpatim. And it's six weeks, it's six, it's six Parshas. And they say that these Parshas, basically this period of time in the year, is a time where we have the ability to do extra levels of fixing and soul correction over the rest of the year. So these parshas. Now, why why these parshas? What's the importance of this? And then we're going to get to where we are right now in terms of this cycle, because we're at a very interesting juncture in this cycle. Um, so, so this is the heart of the Torah, because this is you know I keep on flashing on this bit of imagery. I never heard anyone else say this, but just this is this is me talking. 
you know, if you were to roll out the Torah scroll on a table, these six parshas feels like, like almost like a patient on the table, that this is the beating heart of the Torah, these parshas. Why? Because th- these parshas are talking about the Jewish people becoming a nation, going from slavery to freedom to getting the Torah at Mount Sinai. So this is really, narratively speaking anyway, this is the heart of the entire Torah. And we know that whatever's going on in the Torah is going on in the world. And vice versa, whatever's going on in the world is going on in that week's portion of the Torah. So if this is the beating heart of the Torah, then clearly this time during the year is a time when you can address the heart of the matter. And I want to tell you a secret right now, which is that and this is kind of based on my learning, and um, this is me saying this, but based on my learning and based on different sources that I've seen, and also just uh, from a psychological perspective, just what I've learned in, in that field. You see, if someone, if someone thinks something with their mind, and, something, and someone, that same person feels something else with their heart. When push comes to shove, they're usually going to do what their heart tells them to do. Or what they feel like doing, as opposed to what they know is right or wrong. In other words, they can even know something is wrong. But if they feel like doing it, there's a good chance they're going to end up doing what they want to do anyway. So that's a very, very important insight that everyone has to have about themselves. Which means that if your Torah knowledge and your knowledge of right and wrong and your sense of purpose in this world is just in your head and it's not in your heart, it's hard because there's a good chance you're just going to not do it. Even though you know better. So the, 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 the trick, the secret is, that's the first part of the secret. The second part of the secret is to make sure that this knowledge that we learn together enters into your heart. It has to enter into your heart. Because if it doesn't enter into your heart, then you're not going to be able to use it. Because, say it again. It has to be congruent. Exactly. The heart and the mind has to come together. And that's the amazing, that's the amazing level about this month that we're in right now. When we're reading these parshas of Shovavim, when I say the heart of the Torah, because this is happening during the month of Shvat. And this is very, very interesting, the Jewish month of Shvat. Shvat is basically, the, you see, in Torah we go by beginnings. If something happens in the beginning, then we count it like it happened. Even if it hasn't fully manifested itself, like for instance, this is kind of an odd example, I'm going to give you a few examples. But in terms of secondary sex characteristics, someone is considered an adult when they have two hairs that grow. And that's when, legally speaking, in Jewish law, someone is considered an adult. Interesting. In other words, the beginning of the signs of maturity counts as, halakhically speaking, maturity. I'll give you another, maybe two hairs. Maybe another more poetic example. That's a very technical, nitty-gritty example. But I'll give you another example. When there are three stars in the sky at nighttime, that's considered daytime. You know? Because, um, 
because uh, that's considered the next day. So in other words, three stars, <coughs> you know, the Jewish calendar measures the beginning of day at nighttime. So you might think that's really upside down. Why are we saying day begins at night? <laughs> that, that seems like very odd. But everybody knows the Jewish day starts when there are three stars in the sky. Why? Because the promise of light is counted as light. Three stars in the sky, that's the promise of light. Right? That's the beginning of light. That, that counts as light. So here you see that the beginning of something is counted as, as the real thing. Okay? So, so, so I said that Shvat, this time of the year that we're in right now, is, is, also, is also the beginning of springtime. So it's not technically spring yet, but it's the beginning of springtime. Meaning to say what? This is the time of the year when the sap in the tree starts to rise. So, in other words, especially for, for you uh, who have uh, grown up, you know, here in California, we don't really have seasons, but in, in other parts of the world, like where I grew up, you have real seasons. So, so what's going on with that? So if you've ever experienced a winter, you, you look at a tree in the winter, and you say, that tree is dead. There's no way that tree is coming back. All the leaves are gone. It's, it's got these skeletal-looking branches that look like skeleton fingers, right? It, it's like very... It's very dark. It really is. It's like, you know, the world gets all Tim Burton, you know? And it's like... Then, all of a sudden, somehow, it turns green and fruit starts coming and you're like, how did that happen? How did that happen? It's, it's, it's incredible. It goes from dead to alive. So... So there's a critical uh, in-between step, which is when the sap inside the tree starts to rise. And that's when the life force returns to something. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, sometimes we look in the mirror and we're like, you know, it's like one of those winter trees. You know, we can't imagine that, that there's any life in us. But the truth is, it's, it, it is inside of us and it's, it's waiting to return. And in Shvat, this month, the sap starts pumping again, and the life force starts to manifest itself. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is, is that that's the beginning of life. Even though it's not yet manifest on the outside, like two hairs or three stars in the sky, the sap beginning is the beginning of life. Okay? So, so, so I'm telling you that that these Parshas that we're learning right now, this period of the year that we're in right now, is called Shovavim. And Shovavim is the beating heart of the Torah, because it's the area of the Torah that's going through the narrative of us going from slavery to freedom to receiving the Torah. And this is a time of tremendous fixing, when you can do more fixing at this time than at other parts during the year. Because right now you're addressing the heart. And what did we say? That if in general, you know, there's a, 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 a foundation which I definitely hold by, which is that the largest distance in the entire universe is between the heart and the mind. And something can be in your mind, but if it's not in your heart, 
then you're just going to do what your mind tells you. Not, it, or rather, you're just going to do what your heart tells you. Right? It's sort of like, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? Well, what do I feel like doing? <laughs> and you're going to do in the end what you feel like doing. Which means that this stuff has to be in your heart. Because if it's not in your heart, then ultimately, it doesn't matter. Interestingly, interestingly, and so what I'm saying is that this, these Parshas right now, this time during the year right now, is directly speaking to the heart. This is, this is the heart time. And this is the time of bridging that gap between the mind and the heart. And where do we see that? In a very fascinating way. It says right in the Torah itself, right in the, it's not a medrash or anything, it's right in the five books itself. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses started saying the book of Devarim, which, remember, you've got four books is from God, and the fifth book, which is also from God, but it was said by Moshe. And how do you say, well, if Moshe said it, how did God say it, so why is that considered one of the, why does it have equal status with the other four books, is the question. And the, the answer that I heard from Rabbi Sitran, I believe in the name of the Arbarbanel, which is just like one of these beautiful answers, which is like after, well, I'll speak for myself, after I heard it, it's like, yeah, okay, that's right. After Moshe said it, God said, good, now write it. So, so that's why it's from God and from Moshe. So, 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 uh, so, but for Moshe to have channeled something or to have brought down something at such a high level, and by the way, the first letter, unlike all the other books, the first letter of the book of Devarim is the letter Aleph. And Moshe is saying it. So it's interesting. In other words, how high did his prophecy reach? He was channeling all the way up to the Aleph, to the letter Aleph, and bringing that down. So this month of Shvat, where we're saying the heart and the mind come together, is when Moshe Rabbeinu, as a human being, is bringing heaven down to earth on an individual level. He's fusing heaven and earth. And one of the, one of the prophecies of the Torah is that our hearts are going to be circumcised in the end of days. Meaning to say that we've got some sort of fatty layer, some sort of flap of skin, however you want to express it. And actually, anatomically, we do have this. We have some sort of covering on our heart. And that that somehow is blocking our, our perception. By the way, I saw something really fascinating. This, this, it was either this week or last week. They did a study about psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms. I don't know if you, you guys saw this. It got uh, a fair amount of uh, uh, press. And what they did was um, brain scans of people who were on psilocybin and discussing its relationship with depression. And they were showing how, interestingly, that the main hub of the brain, in terms of where um, logical activity and everything like that takes place in the brain, that when someone was on psilocybin, that area wasn't really lit up. It was the other sides of the brain that were lit up. So that's, it's an interesting insight because, you know, people report that on that drug that basically they feel so they can see the world in a way that sort of transcends logic. And so you actually see it illustrated now in terms of brain scans and 
while they say that they, you know, certainly a person shouldn't self-medicate or, or, or you know, try to treat themselves in this way, nonetheless, there, there's a very interesting link. So what you see there is, though, and uh, Rabbi Kaplan talks about this, Ari Kaplan, that, that we think that the central nervous system, which is the, the coordination between the brain and the, the spinal cord and the rest of the body, the ability to uh, take in outside stimuli and to absorb them and then to manifest in terms of uh, motor activity, that all of that is designed to make us aware of everything around us. But the reality is, is that a lot of our central nervous system is actually designed to block outside stimuli. Because if we absorbed everything that was going on around us, it would actually cripple us and drive us insane. Like, for instance, to give one example that they use in this context, you know, I don't know how many of you have ridden the subway in New York, but if you could imagine that the rest of the day, you would be able to have a perfect memory of every single face that you saw on the subway or walking down the streets, you would go mad. And imagine, like, not just every day, but every day over the course of years and years and years and years. It would, it would cripple you. And in fact, in, in the Talmud, it says one of the reasons why we don't see angels, because we know we're surrounded with, you know, these are just kind of aspects of God. They're not independent creatures. But nonetheless, we, we, there are these energy forces called angels that surround us. And one of the reasons why we don't see them, the Talmud says, is because it would derange us. That, so, so in other words, so, so what I'm trying to tell you is that, that this idea of the heart being circumcised in the end of days, that there's an aspect of perception which is being blocked. And when the world reaches its next sort of quantum level of evolution and development, we're going to be able to perceive scads more, scads more. But what I'd like to say is the following, relating it back to the heart and the mind, is that this covering over the heart is a sort of a built-in inherent blockage that we have separating the heart and the mind. In other words, if you say, I'm on such a low level, my heart and my mind are so distant from each other, okay, it's all relative. You can, you can get it closer. In other words, you want your heart and your mind to be as close as possible. But keep in mind that we're all built in with this sort of blockage that's, that is there. And so, to a certain extent, you know, that, that's going to be a challenge until we reach the next stage, basically. So, so, we have to be a little bit patient with ourselves, on some level. But, at the same time, understand what the goal is. Okay. So now, let's get into the mechanics, a little bit, of this period of Shobhavim. Because we said that this, right now, is the heart of the Torah... It's these six Torah portions. And right now, the reason why I want to zero in on it is because we're right in the middle. We're exactly like today. Today, right now, we're exactly in the middle of this six-week process. And thematically, it's really interesting when you look at the Parshas because basically, as of yesterday, we just got out of Egypt. But we haven't left yet. So again, what's the... With, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, we celebrated our first Pesach Seder, our first Passover Seder, which is a celebration of our freedom, while we were still in Egypt. 
That in itself is fascinating, because you would think that the first Pesach Seder, the first celebration of our freedom, should have taken place when we left the border of Egypt, right? But we celebrated our freedom while we were still in Egypt, which gives you an insight into the fact that wherever you are, you're free. You're free. You're free if you decide that you're free. It's up to you. If you're going to define yourself by your outside circumstances, you're missing a very, very substantial point. Right? You have to bring the light. You don't wait for the light to come. You bring the light. It's another idea that we say daytime starts at night. Because that's just the the three stars in the sky. That's the promise of light. But that's not the end of the story. Now it's up to you to bring the light. Now that you know that victory is assured, now it's up to you to bring victory, right? So this is, this is, this is our role. This is our job. So right now, the first three Parshas are Shmos, Fa'era, and Bo. So Bo finishes with Pharaoh saying, Get out! <laughs> you know, like, you know, get out, leave, right? That's the end of the third Parsha. Now, the beginning of the next three is freedom. So, in other words, we're saying that this is the heart of the Torah, and the Torah is our lives, we say, right? Torah Chaim, right? The Torah is our lives. So, that means, if you want to extend this uh, analogy, half of the deal is, what do you do when you're in a period of oppression? What do you do when circumstances are against you? How do you deal with that situation? That's question number one. But you want to hear something? And maybe even more challenging? What about part two? What do you do once you've got freedom? <laughs> what do you do once you have some, you know, you've got some cash in the bank? You've got your health? You wake up? You feel pretty good? What am I supposed to do with my freedom? Got some brains in my head? What am I supposed to do with time? So... That is as much a question of what do you do in a place of oppression? What do you do in a place of freedom? And this is, of course, in our time, living in America in the 21st century. This is one of the fundamental questions that we have to ask. Because, you know, life and history and everything like that is like a kaleidoscope. You know, you look at a kaleidoscope and you turn it, and then the picture changes and the picture changes and the picture changes... But, you know, there's a constant. It's still the same thing. You're still holding the same object in your hands. But it keeps changing, changing, changing. And that's us. We're here, and in our own personal lives, on a micro level, and on a macro historical level, we're here, and then God says, well, how are you going to do when you can't eat? And how are you going to do if they tell you they're going to kill you if you study Torah? And how are you going to do if all of a sudden your crops are full? And you got a lot of time on your hands. And now how are you going to do in this situation? And how are you going to do in this situation? And now you lost someone. And now you just gave birth to someone. And now you... Ah, endless, 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 endless variations. How are you going to do it? How are you going to react? So right now, really, our test is, now that we have freedom, how are we going to react? And now I'll tell you something else, something very interesting. 
which is that I told you we're right in the middle of this period. We're right in the beginning of confronting the responsibility of freedom. Well, the Talmud says that there are two, two words that have different meanings, and they often begin passages. One is Bahaya, right? So Bahaya, it says, means something good is going to happen. Okay? And then there's Vayahi. And Vayahi means something negative is about to happen. Okay? So, what if you had to pick between Vahaya, something positive, or Vayahi, something negative, we're leaving Egypt, right? This is now the first word of Parshas Beshalach. We're leaving Egypt for real right now. Getting ready for the splitting of the Red Sea. That's right on the horizon, right? So what word do you think is going to happen? So I would say Vahaya, because we're getting out of Egypt. So the very first word in terms of this idea of us relating to our freedom, right, is Vayahi. So that's strange. So I heard Reb Shlomo Karlbach say in the name of one of the Rebbes, maybe the original Rebbe, I'm not positive, that why does it say Vayahi? So the passage says that basically Paro, like, kicked us out. Right? At that point. So, 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 I heard Reb Shlomo say, in the name of this Rebbe, that the reason why it says Vayahi, which means something negative, is that on some level, the Jews felt like it was Paro who was giving them freedom, as opposed to God giving them freedom. Right? And that's, that's really interesting. Let's say I don't have a job. Let's say I don't have a job, Okay? And I say, i got a lot of time on my hands. Who's giving me this time? Is it the, the unemployment board who's giving me this time? Because if, if I have this time because I'm unemployed, then, then my freedom is coming from Paro. <laughs> that's, that's a different type of freedom. I'm not free to do what I want right now. I'm just unemployed. You, you understand the difference? As opposed to, you know what? At this point in my life, for whatever reason, God is giving me time. God is giving me time to use, and God must have something in mind with how he wants me to use this time properly. Do you hear the difference? Where is my freedom coming from? And so at that point, they were still on this level of vayahi, because even though all the gates were opening up, nonetheless they still felt that they were in this this construct. And now I told you, I want to tell you more about this principle of Rafua Lefnei Hamaka, which again means the idea that God gives us the cure before he gives us the blow, the punishment. Okay, the patch, however you want to translate maka. So, so God gives us the cure first. So before we get freedom, right, bef- right before we get a mitzvah. Before we leave Egypt, we get a mitzvah. And it's the first mitzvah that the Jewish people get as a nation. Okay? So, in fact, this is so fundamental that the Jewish people are getting this mitzvah that, that the first Rashi in all of Chumash, right? On Breshis, the first Rashi says, asks the question, why didn't God begin the entire Torah with this section? 
Alright, so this is a very fundamental mitzvah. This is not a small thing that I'm about to tell you. This is the first mitzvah the Jewish people got as a nation. And amazingly, it's so beautiful, it's so deep, it was to make a calendar. In other words, the first thing that God was saying in anticipation of our freedom is you have to learn how to master and sanctify time. Amazing. Amazing. God is anticipating where we're going. The fact that we're all of a sudden going to be masters of our own time. And God says you have to learn how to structure, master, and sanctify time. That's deep. That's really deep. And on some level, you know, it says that the word brachis, brachis, which means, it's, you know, the classic translation is in the beginning, right? It's the first word of the Torah. Or with beginnings, a deeper translation. Because God created the whole world out of the fabric of beginnings, right? I heard that from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So either way, I heard in the name of the Vilna Gon that with brachis, God created time. Right? That, that that's, that's where you see the, the creation of time, because it means beginnings. Beginnings is already a time-bound concept. So, in other words, in other words, you see this amazing link between the first mitzvah that we're about to get as a nation, right, which is to make a calendar, which is to master time, and the actual first word of the Torah, which is also about the creation of time. So, it's, it all begins with time, because you know something? When you think about it, what do you really have? All you got is time. <laughs> that is, that is, you know, if you want to really strip it down, you want to really strip it down. <laughs> you got a lot of time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so, so, so this it's 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 very fundamental. Now, listen to this. You want to hear uh, an amazing Torah? This is from the B'nai Yisastr, okay? So the B'nai Yisastr says, so remember, we have this, this, this mitzvah to make months, right? That's what it means to make a calendar, to divide up the year into months. The word for month is Chodesh, okay? Chodesh is the Gematria 312, okay? Now listen to this, something fascinating. There are 12 months, Okay? Now, we've discussed it in different talks, and if you don't know it, I'm telling you now. Each month has a different permutation of Hashem's holiest name, of the Yudke Vavke. So, each month has a different permutation of Yudke Vavke. Okay? Now, now the, num- the numerical value of Hashem's holiest name, of the Yudke Vavke, is 26. Okay, now listen to this. The Vinaya Saskar points out. So each month has a different permutation of the Yud Kevavke, which is the number 26, okay? So 12 times 26, the number of months times the variations of the name of God, right, equals the word Chodesh, 312. Because each month has one of 12 variations of the Yud Kevavke, which is 26. So 12 times 26 is 312, which is Chodesh, which is month. So another perspective of the divinity of time, and also of the divine integrity of the concept of months. You know, one of the interesting things that the Kuzari points out is that 
you know, we have this common... We all have... All of humanity has a common ancestor. Adam and Chava. And by the way, there was a study... Adam and Eve. There was a study that came out a few years ago. Some DNA genetics type study. I I can't quote it exactly, but if you look it up, they said that that they trace humanity to four, four mothers... You know, of course, the Jewish people have four mothers in the in the in the Torah, but but in other words, all of ancestry can pretty much just on a strict scientific level be be tracked to basically a common ancestor, which is that in itself is kind of striking. But anyway, that's not the point I wanted to make. I want to tell you what the Kuzari says. So this is going back about a thousand years now. They point out that cultures all around the world have a seven-day week. You know, and if you think about it, why should all these different cultures have seven-day weeks. Why, why shouldn't they have independently decided, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll have the ten-day week. Or, you know what, we're not going to have any weeks. Or we'll have a 40-day week. Or we'll have a 365-day week. Or whatever it is. And yet you see, like, somehow, if you look at, like, today, for instance, you see that this concept of a seven-day week has, it exists everywhere, basically. So, so um, anyway, and, and of course, God created the world in seven days, although that was over a period of billions of years. You know, so, anyway, uh, that's striking. That's striking. So now, again, going to this idea of refua lefnei hamaka, that God gives us the cure before he strikes a blow. So before we get freedom... God gives us this, mis- this, this mitzvah of how to master time. Okay? Now, I want to give you another example of the Rafua Lefnei Hamaka, which um, is, is, to me, very beautiful. So, this is um, in Parsha's bow. This is now talking about, this is the end of the plagues. We haven't left Egypt. We haven't left the borders physically of Egypt left uh, yet, but, but, um, but sort of the Torah is kind of recapping right now. And it says, it was at the end of 430 years, and it was on that very day that all the legions of Hashem, and I'll give you the Hebrew in a moment, all the legions of Hashem left the land of Egypt. So, on a very uh, uh, basic shot level, right? On a literal level, all the legions of Hashem, that's the English word that they're using, would, I guess, mean the Jewish people left Egypt. But if you left Egypt, sir. But if you actually look at the, the the words of the Torah itself, it says, "Yatsu Kol Tzvaot Hashem." Now, when, whenever you see this term, um, like Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzvaot Hashem, Kol Arts, you know, Kibodah. Yeah? Is that what Whatever. Anyway, the point is, is that whenever you see this, this term, tzfa'ot, uh, it means the, the hosts of angels. It's always referring to angels when, when you see this word. So, so one of the Rebbes, and I, I read this, this isn't mine, but one of the great Rebbes, I don't remember who, said the following. So, so now, knowing that this word usually means angels, like hosts, armies, millions of angels, right? Let me read it again. It was at the end of 430 years, and it was on that very day 
that all the angels of Hashem left the land of Egypt with the Jewish people. So, we have another Talmudic principle. I guess, if you're not getting what I'm saying yet, you need this piece of information for it to make sense. That whenever we go into exile, God goes into exile with us. So if we're exiled in Egypt, that means that there's an aspect of Hashem that's also exiled with us in Egypt. So when we left Egypt, the Torah is telling us all the armies of angels of Hashem left Egypt with us. Because when we left exile, they also left exile. And here you have a recording of the hosts of angels that left because they were also free because they didn't have to be in exile anymore either. Now, I'll tell you how seriously this idea is taken. Beautiful story, but just beautiful because it just gives you an insight of, into the way tzaddikim think, holy people think. The Rishina Rebbe was one of the great Hasidic masters. And um, basically, they trumped up some lies against him, and in Russia, he was thrown into prison. And uh, for they thought that he wanted to overthrow the Tsar, which is such a joke. Like this, like this Hasidic Rebbe really wants to be the Tsar of Russia, right? I mean, the, 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 the concept itself is ridiculous. But anyway, that aside, they threw him into some dank prison. This is, you know, in the 1800s. And, uh, and it said that he recorded that his biggest pain... And remember, here's a, it's a holy man. Who knows if he's going to even have kosher food to eat? Who knows if he's even going to be able to have any books or a prayer book or even his tefillin or anything? I mean, there's a, there's a big, horrible thing that's happening to him, being thrown into this dungeon, basically. He said that his greatest tircha, his greatest pain that he experienced was knowing in this dank, disgusting place that the Shekhinah had to descend into this place because, because God also goes into exile with us when we're in exile. And that's, that's what gave him the most pain. So, so, and he was freed, by the way. And actually, the story of how he's freed, it, it's, it's worth telling. It's a little bit of an aside, but it's, it's worth telling. In, he, he finally was able to escape and to get out of the country. And he went to a place in Austria called Sadigor. And that's why if you, you, there's a Sadigor Rebbe, and they're all, the whole Sadigor line is de- descended from Rishon. Okay? So, so they sent some people to uh, Austria, and the Rebbe was there. And the Austrian government, which were not really friends of the Jewish people, were like, well, wait a second, this is a wanted man in Russia. You know, we're, we're supposed to make an international conflict with Russia for harbor, harboring this fugitive? What do we want to do that for? We don't care about him. So they went to a Jewish minister of state who was a secular Jew, an assimilated Jew, and they said to him, listen, please do what you can to save the life of the Rishon Rebbe, of this great holy man. You know, he needs to have safe harbor in your country because the Russians want him. And so he said, why should I do that? You know, like, I don't have any connection with him. Like, why should I do that? So they said to him, 
something very interesting. They said, you know what? When he sits down to have a meal, he doesn't bring his head to the fork to eat. He brings the fork to his mouth to eat. That's what they said to him. Right? So, sometime later, the minister came back and he had worked his connections and he said, you know something? It's going to work out. We're going to grant him citizenship or whatever the, the, the legalities of it were. But they said he can stay in Austria. That was the bottom line. And he said, and I want to tell you something. If you had told me miracle stories about this Rebbe, about how holy he was, I wouldn't have let him stay and I wouldn't have done anything for him. But after you told me that, I went into my chambers and I had lunch. And I remembered what you had mentioned. And I tried to eat my meal by bringing my fork to my mouth as opposed to my head to the fork. And it was really hard to do. And I thought to myself, you know what, if this man has reached such a level of refinement, this is someone who's worthy of being protected. Amazing, amazing, amazing story. An amazing story, really. You know, because, well, anyway. So, 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 so now I want to zero in more on this passage. So you see that when we go into exile, the Shekhinah, the angelic dominions, whatever, minions, go down with us. And when we're freed, they left. But I want to go into it a little more deeply. It says it was at the end of 430 years that we were freed. Now, if you read the Torah, you'll see that there are three different dates given for the length of the Egyptian exile. One is 430, one is 400 years, the other is 210 years. And each one is measuring the, the beginning of the Egyptian servitude from a different milestone. Okay? And the 430-year measure is measuring it from uh, a, an event in the Torah called the Bris Bein Abbasarim, which was the covenant between the halves. It's basically when God made a deal with Abraham that the Jewish people are going to be his people for all eternity. That's the covenant of the halves. Okay? So that's 430 years, and then Abraham says, how do I know this is going to be true? And then God says, you know what, your children are going to be slaves in Egypt. So that's 400, and I'm going to take them out, and that's a whole chapter in itself. Anyway, the bottom line is that's, that's the beginning of the 430 years. But what I want to say is the following. That you see these angels, 430 years of angels, are coming out of Egypt. That the beginning of the angelic presence, cushioning the exile, the refuel of Neomaka, the heel before the blow, the healing was already being put into place at the very beginning. At the very beginning of the initial decree, already God was preparing to save us. And all of us in our own lives, we have to understand that if there's whatever decree, whatever it is, that already from the very beginning, God is already giving us help with all of our challenges, and we have to know that. I want to tell you something. Something from my life. There's a prayer that we say by the sukkah. Okay? 
When we, it's, 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 it's the name of the prayer is Farewell to the Sukkah. Okay? It's one of the most beautiful prayers in the whole prayer book, and it's, you only get to say it once, once a year. It's pretty short. And one of the things that you say is that because the sukkah is outside of our house, it says that God, and we're, we're reading it right, right around the time, right after Rosh Hashanah, when the, the year, the broad contours of the year anyway are decreed, what's going to be for the year, right? So davening on Rosh Hashanah is really important. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So this is shortly thereafter, and it says, if there's a decree of exile on us, then please, God, the fact that I went into the sukkah, and I went outside my home into the sukkah, please, God, count that as the fulfillment of any decree of exile that's on me. Right? Because I uprooted myself from my home, and I went outside my home, and I dwelled outside my home. Let that cancel out and fulfill any decree of exile that's on me. That's one thing that we say. But now listen to this. It also says, all the mitzvahs that I did in the sukkah, all the angels that were created through my, through my devotion, because that, that might sound like a mystical concept. To me, it's a very basic concept. When you do something, whatever it is, if you do something, if you hug someone, right, you feel an emission of energy from you. There's part of your life force leaves you. That has an independent integrity and in existence. We call it, in, in, in terminology, angels. But you don't have to call it that. You can call it life force. You can call it energy. Whatever it is. Just understand that you emit it and it continues to exist. And if you get really angry and you start yelling, ah, right? That's also an emission of energy. So we'll call that, we give that another name. You can call that a demon. You can call it whatever you like. But the point is, is that it, it has an integrity because it's got a life force to it and it enters into the world. You understand? So, we say, all the angels that I created while in the sukkah, can they please God, let them accompany me out and follow me out. Right? And escort me out and stay with me. Now listen to this. I lived in the same building. Our, 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 my family was in the same building in New York City on 79th Street and Broadway, a building called the Apthorpe. We were there for 50 years. Okay? Not, I, you know, my parents were there before me, and then my dad was there after I left, but we had a presence in, in, in an apartment there for 50 years. And when my dad died, when he was nifter, we, we left, because uh, there were all sorts of legalities. We couldn't stay in the building anymore, unless we paid an exorbitant price, and we didn't have that, so we left. And I was packing up my dad's belongings with my family, and um, and I had to go back to Los Angeles, and that was it, because the place was basically packed up, and while I was in L.A., whatever hadn't been packed up was going to be packed up, so I actually had this experience of leaving this apartment where, at that point, I had spent over 40 years, and I had worked there during the summers as an elevator man in the building, and the building itself was really kind of part of my identity. It really meant a lot to me, this building. And I was keenly aware that as I was leaving the house that time, that that was the end. That, I, that that's, it's over. That it's gone. It's finished this chapter of my life. And I flashed on the prayer of 
that we say when we leave the sukkah. And I stood there by the door, like with it maybe, I don't know, half an inch from being closed all the way. And I stood there and I started praying. And I don't know how this prayer came to me, but it did. And I said, God, all of the angels that have been created from all of the mitzvahs that have been done in this home, please, please, God, may they escort me out. You know? And I closed the door. What's in Hebrew? It says. I don't know. You can look it up. You can look it up in the Art Sitter. It says, it says uh, the farewell to the sukkah. That's where you can find the words. Okay, okay, okay. Everything good. Yes, I will. I'll lock up you. So, um, so, say, Larry, all the words of Torah should escort you out. <laughs> so, so, so you see, you see this idea though, and I'm going to finish up now. You see this idea that that God prepares prepares for us in advance our needs, and um, you know if you even just think of how incredible it is that when a baby is born to a mother, a mother has milk, like just. Where'd you get the milk from? You know, it's, it's kind of amazing. I didn't have milk before I was pregnant. After, you know, I finish weaning, I'm not going to walk around with milk. It just so happens when the baby's born, that's when I have milk. You think about it, that's pretty wild, you know? Pretty wild, actually. Or just say, oh, women always have milk. But, it's not, but that's not the case. Or women never have milk. That's not the case. It just so happens when the baby's born and the baby needs milk. You know what? I got some milk. Or whatever you need. You know what? They don't need like food or anything like that. All, everything is contained in that milk. That's all they need. That's pretty amazing. And God prepares that before the baby's born. So you, you see it in so many wondrous ways how God prepares for our situation before we enter into our situation. And I just want to tell you a personal story that happened to me yesterday, and we can end with this. So, we were having some uh, people over for lunch. Um, you know, who, who, very special, beautiful people, not, you know, not observant, whatever it is, but beautiful, spiritual people. And, um, and uh, bef- before they came, uh, maybe really just a few minutes before they came, within the hour, probably within the half hour, my youngest son had a question for me. He was struggling with some aspect of of uh, the Torah. And, uh, and he was asking me a question. He was asking me a question. And... Uh, and... Uh, and... And I wanted to show him, I wanted to show him the, what, what, what I wanted, he was asking me about some of the laws of Shabbos. He said, bless you. Because he had a problem. He said, you know something, and I'm going to continue to research this for him, but basically there's something that he kind of wanted to do, and that's very easy for him to do. But one of the laws of Shabbos is you can't do this particular thing. So he was saying to me, really, with pain, he was pained when he was saying this. He's 10 
and he was pained. He said, it's not work for me to do this. It takes, it's no, it's no work for me to do this. So why are you telling me that this is work on Shabbos if it's not work? And I told him, listen, you're using the English word, which is work, which suggests some degree of effort or exertion, but the, the laws of Shabbos aren't revolving around whether something is effort-driven or not. It's, it's, it's going, it's a whole different nomenclature. It's a whole different categorization. And, and, and so we're going to learn that together. By the way, if you want to know the answer to this question in a more detailed way, Rabbi Ari Kaplan in his book called The Sabbath has a chapter on this, a small chapter, which explains it very, very clearly. So we're going to do that together and get into it more. But I just wanted to tell him about the greatness of Shabbos and everything like that. And how. And so we, I wanted to show him in the word breishis. I've shared it with you, but just we're going to go someplace else with it. So let me just say this as an in-between step. I was showing him how in the word breishis, the first word of the Torah, remember it means with beginnings, right? That, that that one word has in it the entire history of all of creation. And that you can divide up that word into Aleph. Aleph is one. Remember, that's the first word of the alphabet. Aleph is one. That, that stands for God. So before the world's created, you have the Aleph, the oneness of God. God existed before the world was created. Then you can take the letters Resh and Yud, which adds up to 210, which is the Egyptian exile. That's the Egyptian servitude, which stands for exile. In other words, the world's created... Then we have to do work. And then the remaining three letters spell Shabbos. And then we go into Shabbos. That's wow. the destiny of the world. In other words, first God existed before the world was created. Then we, there's this illusion of separation. And then Shabbos is freedom or redemption. The, the Messianic period is called the day that will be all Shabbos. So, so that's then that's the destiny of the world. The whole roadmap of all of civilization, of, of eternity, is spelled out in the, in the first word itself of the Torah. So then, so then, my son is looking at the word some more, and he says, you know what else is in Breshis? Brit, Brit Eish, which means a covenant of fire. So I thought, well, that's pretty intense, you know. I mean, you know, we gotta, we gotta look, we gotta look in the bala, we gotta look in the balaturim because the balaturim brings many different uh, levels within that one word and variations of the word. So I said, let's see if the balaturim says that. So I pull out the balaturim and we look, and there it is. Brit Eish is is in the balaturim. And the explanation, this covenant of fire, is that you, you have something called Eish HaTorah. It's a, you know, a big Torah institution named that, but Eish HaTorah is a concept. It means that there's an aspect of fire that surrounds you, a holy fire that surrounds you when you learn Torah. And that holy fire counteracts the fire of Gehenna. So it shields you when everyone passes through Gehenna on the way to Shemayim, on the way to heaven. And if you have this, this cloak of fire around you, this Eishat Torah, it shields the fire of Gehenna. So that's how the Balaturim explains Brit Eish, 
Okay, and there, but now listen to this. We learn some more. We go, well, look, now, as long as we're learning the Balachor Mandrashis, let's see some of the other variations. Now, this is wild. This is wild. And we're getting to the point. We're finishing up. Brashis also contains all the letters. This is, again, using all the letters without repeating any of the letters. So that's really exact. Aleph B'Tishrei, which means the first in the month of Tishrei, the first day of the month of Tishrei, also known as Rosh Hashanah, which is the beginning of creation. That's Brashis, using all the letters. And by the way, I was discussing this with Moshe Pare. Rabbi Perry, he said something very interesting. There's a, this is just a PS. There's a whole side debate about because Rosh Hashanah, even in Israel, is two days. So there's a whole very interesting discussion whether Rosh Hashanah is beyond time and it's actually halakhically a 48-hour day, which is a wild concept in itself, or is it just two days? Right? So he said... If you look at Breshis, it can either read Aleph B'Tishrei, the first day in the month of Tishrei, or Aleph Be'ez Tishrei, the first and the second of the month of Tishrei, which would be Rosh Hashanah also, if it's a two-day holiday, as opposed to a one 48-hour holiday. You see, it's fascinating, like all the levels, you know? When you have different opinions in the Gomorrah, it says, this is the word of God and this is the word of God. And here you see it fused together in an, in an awesome way. Right again in the very first word of the Torah. So, so, so then these guests come and it's very nice and we're talking and they, they had a couple of little kids and we're talking about the kids and their birthdays and everything like that and you know, my wife and I always are always interested in people's uh, birthdays because it's just an insight into the person. And it's, it's, it's just cool to, to, to know what your birthday is. So, um, so sure enough, their eldest son is born on Rosh Hashanah. Wow. And I said, you want to see something really cool about Rosh Hashanah? <laughs> Look at the first word of the Torah. And I showed them. And I showed them and they were amazed. Now, that's minutes later. That's minutes later. How did I find that minutes before they arrived? Oh, yeah. How did I find that? How did I find that? Does that make any sense whatsoever? We're in the middle of the book. We're in the middle of the book of Shmos. What am I doing looking at a deep, not even the first commentary on the first within the Balatorum, minutes before they arrive. What sense? That doesn't make any sense. But I'll tell you what it is. It's God preparing. God is preparing in advance. God is preparing in advance. He wanted them, obviously, to have a deeper connection to their son, to the Torah, to who they are, to what's going on. And so he prepared something for them in advance. So this is our lives. This is our lives. We're, you see, we live in something that we can call the unprecedented present. The unprecedented present. Which means that as much as we can learn history and study books of wisdom and everything like that, every moment from, for us is new. And we don't really have a preparation necessarily 
for how to deal with the moment. We don't, because as much as we prepare, it's new. On the same time, you have to understand that the future has been prepared for you. <laughs> you know, like the milk, like the milk that's ready for you before you're born. God is there. He's standing in front of you. He's standing in front of you wherever you go, preparing, paving the way for you. And we've got another Talmudic principle, and we'll really end with this, that in the direction a person wants to go, that's the direction that the person is led. You know, and I'll give you the dark side of this very quickly. I remember as I was becoming more observant, I was sort of uh, nostalgic about being less observant, shall we say. (laughs) And I remember that day an opportunity presented itself for real depravity. Real, honest-to-goodness depravity in my life. I mean, I won't go into details, but trust me. And I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? I was just sort of like bemoaning the lack of excitement in my life. And this? No, I don't want this. I don't want this. Not this. No. Not this. But in the way a person desires to go, that's the direction that a person is led. But, I'm saying one more thing, it's also prepared for you. So you should know that if you really want to learn, you'll be provided teachers. But you have to pray. And if you want good things, you'll be provided to do good things. But you'll also have to pray. Okay.